Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Christ is alive. He is our living Savior. Amen. The ascension in the Gospel of Luke is this powerful scene. The ascension of Jesus, this moment of Jesus uh, rising up to heaven at the end of the Gospel of Luke, is actually only mentioned by of the four Gospel writers in the Gospel of Luke. But it's really important to him. We see Luke ending off Luke 24 with the mention of Jesus ascending into heaven. Then he begins a second book, the book of Acts, recapping the same scene noting that Jesus goes into heaven and he will return in the same way at the end of time to gather his people. The ascension to Luke is a big deal. So kind of keep that thought in the back of your mind. And as we go through our text today, hopefully we will see how an ascended Jesus is with us in the midst of this pandemic. My name is Pastor Tim, and I am really thankful. Today we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke. We've been studying this book, and it's been a joy to see Jesus continually. We've even had an opportunity as a congregation to read through the Gospel of Luke in the season of Lent. Luke 24 has us exploring uh, the risen Jesus. He is showing himself to his disciples. He's explaining himself through Scripture to them, and he is even breaking bread, and they're recognizing who he is. So let me read for us our text today, Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. And if you have your Bibles, just open them up on your computer, on your laptop, uh, on your phone, or just in front of you on your lap, and kind of keep it open. We love Scripture, and we love to allow Scripture to speak to us. So let me read our text from Luke 24. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in to today. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. 
Let's pray. Jesus, I ask right now, come Holy Spirit and open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. Thank you that the scriptures are your gift to us. And so Holy Spirit, come help us see Jesus more clearly and help us help the words that I preach be your words for your glory. And may as we spend time in your word, Holy Spirit, come and show us who we are, what we are called to, and how, we, uh, how an ascended Christ matters and calls us into worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard this story, kind of an analogy in seminary. It's not a real story, but I'll tell it to you. Imagine having like a grandmother in your life, someone who was you know, committed to you and loved you, would come to your soccer games, would always give you 25 bucks for Christmas and your birthdays and was ever present in your life. Imagine she passes away and then after her funeral, you and your parents are just cleaning up her house and just trying to uh, just, you know, make, tidy everything up in order to sell the house. And as you're reflecting upon your life of your grandmother, you come across this little drawer and you open it up and you start looking through these files. And all of a sudden in these files, you pull out documents and they're redacted and you're starting to look and wonder and you start to realize all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I think my grandmother worked for the CIA. And like the grandmother that you knew is no different. It's, it's not like she lied to you her life. But all of a sudden, these documents and all these things you found shed a fuller picture or a light upon who your grandmother is. You start sharing this with your parents, and you're like, Dad, Dad, remember when you said the hardest part of being a teenager was when, when your mom missed your 16th birthday? I think, I think it was because she was JFK's advisor on the Bay of Pigs invasion in 61. That's why she missed your birthday. I mean, this is something you'd want to know when you're a little kid. It'd be the greatest playground brag of all time, you know? Yeah, well, my, mom, my grandmother works for the CIA. You know, the reality is, your grandma is still your grandma, and she still loved you. But these documents and these files all of a sudden provide a fuller picture of who she was. You see, Jesus is doing the same thing with his disciples. He's taking them to God's word, to the scriptures, to show them who he was and how scripture had spoken hundreds of years before he came what the Messiah would do and how he would act and who he was. Let's take a look at verse 44 if you have your Bibles. Jesus said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. But what did Scripture say? Let's look at verse 45 to 47. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scripture. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Today, I just want to focus on three things that were revealed about Jesus through Scripture. The first one is that the Messiah must suffer. The second is that uh, the, Christ must have physically risen from the dead. And finally, that repentance and forgiveness is a gift for all people. When we talk about a suffering Jesus, it's not something that's common in the minds of people. 
It's not what people expect a savior or a hero to be. You know, we all have expectations in our life for the people in our lives. You know, some of us, for our roommates, we, we have an expectation that our roommates will do their own dishes and put their own dishes away. In marriage, we have an expectation sometimes that our spouse will do their own dishes and put their own dishes away. And sometimes, even as parents, we have this high bar. Hopefully, one day, our kids will even be able to do their own dishes and put them away. The Jewish people had an expectation about who the Messiah was. You see, they had been living under uh, oppressive regimes for centuries, from the Babylonians to the Assyrians to the Persian Mede Empire to the Greeks and now the Romans in the time of Jesus. They longed for the day. They longed for the days of King David and King Solomon when Israel was a great empire and other nations respected them and came to them for advice, wisdom, and to see their greatness. They longed for a king to rule over them. You know, when Jesus shows up on Palm Sunday one week before his death, some people are thinking, here's the heralded Messiah, the king, the coming king, the one that we've been looking forward to. They lay down their cloaks, they wave their palm branches in hope that he would overthrow the Roman party. Yet Jesus wanted to do something else. He wanted to show them what were the expectations that Scripture had given centuries before about who this Messiah was. And as Jesus shows the disciples the scripture, I'm sure he would have taken them to Isaiah chapter 53. This text about the suffering servant. Jesus, even in Luke chapter 22, as he's being arrested, in chapter 22, verse 37, references this text from Isaiah. And this text written 600 years previous talks about the idea of a suffering servant. And who did three things I want to note. Suffered in our place, He bore the punishment for sin and he interceded on our behalf. It's picture-perfect description of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus wanted the people to understand that the Messiah wasn't going to come as a triumphant king and overthrow the Roman rule. He wanted to help them understand what this upside-down kingdom that's preached all through the Gospel of Luke is about. You know, in Luke 4, Jesus says this upside-down kingdom is for who? It's for the poor. It's for the prisoners. It's to, for those who are blind to see, for those who are oppressed to be free, and for the ear of the Lord's favor to be proclaimed. Think about who Jesus ministered to in his life. It was the children, women. Uh, it was the foreigner. It was the outcast, the lepers of society. Those who were on the margins, Jesus served. And when his disciples in Luke 22 have this argument over who is the greatest, Jesus comes and says to them, listen, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. The upside-down kingdom that Jesus preached was all about serving and ministering to those on the margins. And Jesus came as a suffering servant to suffer on our behalf. It's actually quite phenomenal to think about this idea in the Christian story about Jesus suffering. You think about the major religions of the world. You have some of the religions where God is transcendent. He's out there somewhere. He's all-powerful, but he doesn't meddle in our daily life. Then you have other worldviews where Jesus, sorry, God is somewhere amidst us or among us or to be found around us, but he isn't transcendent over all things. Here's the beauty of the Christian story. It's this tension, this beautiful tension of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God, fully man. 
fully human and understands the experience of our lives, yet has transcended and has overcome sin and death. Why does it matter that the Messiah has had to suffer? It's actually a gift for us. Let me explain. The fact that Jesus walked in our shoes and understands human experience means he gets us. Think about that. The God of the universe, the one who was there from all time, who will be there forever, can understand us in a personal way. Have you ever thought about how amazing that is? When Jesus was on this earth, he grieved like we did when he would lose loved ones. He knew what it was to love. He knew what it was to pine for justice. He wept. And here's the thing. He knew the dark side of the human experience. He knew what it was to be tempted. He knew what it was to be misunderstood or just hated because of who he was. The gift of a Messiah who suffered and walked among us is simply this. Jesus who walked on earth can relate to our lives. Yet the gift of an ascended Jesus, one who is now in heaven, is one who is over sin, yet ministers at the right hand of God on our behalf. There's this beautiful text in the book of Hebrews. Let me read that first. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you think about it, what Jesus has done for us allows us to approach him with confidence because he empathizes what it means to be human. What does that mean? Well, that means right now in the midst of this pandemic, you can, you can run to him. You know, when we go through difficult times, here's the reality. We run to people who what? Who get us, who understand us. When I went through a season of burnout and anxiety, who were the people that I ran to and spent time with? People who struggled with mental health, depression, because they just got what it meant to go through those pains and troubles. And I don't know what it is for you. Some of you are grieving the loss of loved ones. Some of you are baffled about what your future holds and how are you going to pay the bills. You're struggling with you know, aging parents or raising your kids. You just don't know what to do. So you surround yourself with people in the same walk of life. Here's the joy of, of a, a suffering Messiah who's walked on this earth. He can walk with us through any of our journeys that we go through. And because he's ascended to heaven... He is over all and he ministers to us from heaven. He has conquered sin and death and he can relate to us because he has walked in our shoes. This is the gift we get because Jesus chose to suffer and live a life just like ours. He understands us, he relates to us, and he knows what you're going through right now. Jesus had to suffer. At the second point, we see that Jesus wanted to help his disciples understand was that Jesus was physically raised. If you look at verse 36, I love this whole text. I find it just really amusing and funny. You see Jesus shows up at a party, kind of, you know, at their homes, out of nowhere, just appears and declares, peace, be with you. 
Like, imagine being at your friend's house. Remember those days we could gather with friends and, like, hang around inside and do all those fun things? It'll come back. We're, we're, we're getting there. And we look forward to the day where we can just hang out together in people's homes. Can imagine sitting in your home and all of a sudden, boom, someone appeared in the middle of your room who was supposed to be dead, and their first words to you were, peace be with you. Really, like people would choke on their food, spit out whatever they were drinking, yelp, scream, holler, run out of the room. Yet Jesus, probably with a smirk on my, in his face, that's how I imagine the scene going down, with a little peace be with you. Yet in verse 37, he sees that they're startled. and They think they're seeing a ghost. He says, no, why are you troubled? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See those giant nail marks in there? This is me, the one who was just crucified on the cross. He invites them to come, touch, and see. You can't touch a ghost. That's why he invites them to come. And in their disbelief as they move toward Jesus, as they're trying to grasp this, Jesus says this passage of great detail. You know what? To prove to you I'm not a ghost, bring me, not the, bo- not the boiled, not the steam, bring me the broiled fish, please. And he eats it in front of them to show them that he is in some physical body at that moment. You see, what Jesus is trying to do here, and why does this all matter? This is a really good question. Why does this all matter? Because Jesus is in in what the theologians call a resurrected body. It's not his old body that he died in, but it's not, it's neither is it a ghost or something uh, not physical. It's a physical, real reality that he walks around in. It's this new resurrection body that he's been gifted that we will one day be gifted as well. So why go down this road Because I think it's really important to understand that what Jesus did on the cross isn't a metaphor. It's something real. That we believe in a a historical Jesus who died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes note of this and he makes it really clear. You know, You'll understand this analogy, but when, they, when you invest your money, they say diversify is one of the first things you do when you invest your money. Why? Because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Well, the reality of the Christian story is that we literally put all our eggs in the basket that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, we don't have any faith to stand on. And the Apostle Paul notes this to the early church in his letter to the Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's pretty pointed. He's saying that if Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father, what we believe is just a big joke. We don't actually have anything to put our faith in. I pity my family who has to watch movies with me, but you know, there's often in scenes in movies where you get to the end and they're trying, like, it's an inspirational movie, and it's like, you gotta just believe or you gotta just trust, and that helps that person launch into something that, like, you know, ends racism or conquers their, their personal problems that they're going through. And I always get really upset in those scenes because I wanna yell, faith in what? Are you just believing that there's some good omens in the universe working for you, or that if you just believe it, it'll happen? You see, when Christians say, place your trust or faith in Christ, we're putting our trust in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. See, without that, we have no hope. 
the Christian hope is rooted in a physical resurrection. You see, Jesus is taking his disciples to Scripture in Luke to help them see that their faith is rooted in a physical resurrection of the Messiah. Now, I know there's many of you out there who are like, Jesus actually rose from the dead, or I don't know if I believe that. As, as I said, as Christians, this is, without this, we have no hope. And so I implore you to just study and research and learn about the resurrection. Pick up books like Lee Strobel's Case for Easter, Tim Keller's uh, Hope for the Times of Fear, and just dive into that. And if you have any questions, feel free to use our Connect form. We'd love to just sit down and see where you are on your journey of faith. Jesus had to be physically raised from the dead. And this is the Christian hope. We have a Messiah who suffered, one who was actually raised from the dead, and finally, one who offers repentance and forgiveness as a gift for all people. Now, we're talking about sin, we're talking about forgiveness and repentance, and I know often the idea of repentance is a dirty word. It brings upon us the ideas of shame and guilt, and in the, in the Christian story, it's, it's really interesting. God created the world. He created humankind in his image, yet we chose to sin and do our own thing. Yet God, who gave us our, our, our autonomy and our choice, uh, kept pursuing us in his great life, even though we turned away from him. And ultimately, he sent Jesus to come to this earth, die on the cross for our sins. So when he was resurrected from the dead, uh, he ascended to heaven and he Through his death and resurrection, he made a way for us to be restored in that broken relationship to the God of the universe so that those who put their trust in the physically risen Jesus uh, will experience an abundant and eternal life with him. You know, when I was in university a long, long time ago, I would have different debates with different friends and people in my life. And we would talk about different ethics, and I was like one of the only Christians, so we'd talk about ethics around, you know, gender identity to abortion to all the different sphere of things you can discuss and debate. I didn't realize at the time, but the one thing that people would get the most upset about was the idea that humankind was not inherently good. What I realize now is it really threatens people's self-identity. Here's the thing, in the Bible, we are created in God's image, but sin corrupts that. So it's a bit of a nuanced thing. Yet, when we understand that view of sin, the biblical picture, the biblical story of brokenness, all of a sudden we realize we need something outside ourselves to save ourselves. And that's threatening for our Western culture. Most of people, if you ask them, they would say humankind is good. There's something outside us, our environments, our systems that oppress and crush us. If we were just able to throw off those shackles, we could be the real us and thrive in life. Yet that's not the story that scripture tells. And I think this threatens us because it says many things. We need help from the outside. We aren't actually in control of our life. We're not rational, autonomous beings. And we aren't as good as we think we are. But you see, the way the Bible frames repentance, it frames it as good news. And I know that might sound foreign to some of us, but repentance is an open door toward a relationship with the God of the universe. Repentance is an open door toward a relationship with the God of the universe. Let me explain. 
my kids, we just celebrated our youngest two's ber- kids' birthdays this week. So now we have a five, four, and a two-year-old at home. And it's just a real, it's a fun stage of life, but it's also an exhausting stage of life. And when five years ago before I came, became a parent, I thought I was doing good at this Christian thing called sanctification, which is becoming more like Jesus every day. But I think the reality of having kids just brings out all the ugliness within me. I find myself short with my kids, grumpy with my kids, yelling at my kids, upset with my kids sometimes. And sometimes it's just really irrational. And it makes no sense. And sometimes I have to go to them and sit down with them and be like, hey, Caleb, Ezzy, Levi, I just, maybe not Levi, he's a little too young for this. But guys, when daddy just said this or did this, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And I go to them with repentance. Why? Because In their graciousness, they forgive me. And you know what that does? It restores my fellowship with them. I'm always going to be their dad. They're always going to be my son. But that relationship is healed. And we actually connect and we grow closer to one another. It's the same with the God of the universe. He's not a God out there who said, like, you know, like a parent, like I often do, say sorry to your brother or else, you know, you get a timeout who forces us to repent and say sorry. He waits there with open arms, gives us our choice, and says, I'm waiting for you to come back with arms wide open, waiting to embrace and hold you close. See, our God offers us this gift of repentance as a way to draw us back into the rich fellowship we have with the God of the universe. Now, I realize as we talk about repentance and sin, Some of you may say or even object, like, oh, I hate that word sinner. You know, I have no problem with God, but sometimes it's Christians that are the more troublesome issue. And I'm going to actually agree with you. It is. It's actually, in many ways, the common thread across humanity is the brokenness of our sin. You know, we are all sinners. It's a common struggle that we all have. And the reality is, when you understand the gospel or the good news of the story of Christ, is that no one is better than anyone else. And if you feel like people have put you in your place uh, because they said this sin is worse than that sin, or you feel judged, I just want to say sorry that you've had to experience that. As Christians, we continue to learn and grow. We're not perfect people by any sense. But we turn to the grace of Jesus to help us live our life. We realize that repentance is a gift given to us so that we can be restored in that rich relationship with the God of the universe. And our God waits for us with arms wide open, waiting for us to return to him. After Jesus, you know, shows from scripture and reveals to them that the Messiah must suffer, that the Messiah must be physically risen from the dead, and that repentance is a gift that is meant to be proclaimed to all the world, he takes them to that final portion of Luke, which we often refer to as the Ascension. Let me read to us from verse 50. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God.
My brother-in-law is an incredible photographer. He's a teacher by trade, but he takes his free time, especially in the summer, to travel the globe and just take pictures. He'll climb. He travels from, from Yukon to the southwest of the U.S. to Namibia in the southern half of Africa to find the darkest night sky. He'll climb the highest mountains, risk his own life in order to get a beautiful open shutter image that takes hours to do uh, of God's creation and universe. And I look at these pictures and I stand in awe. I look at them and think, wow, God, you are amazing. You knit that together. You made all this. You gave us the eyes to even see this beauty and wonder. And I realize this is what worship is. As Christians, we worship the God of the universe. When we see him, we worship and proclaim his goodness. And the disciples in this text, after Jesus shows them who he is from Scripture, and as he ascends to heaven, their response, they stand in awe. They acknowledge God, they praise him, they give thanks, and they place their trust in the God of the universe. Even after he ascends to heaven, they gather together and just praise and worship the one true God who sent his son to suffer in our place, who physically died in our place in order to open the door for us to be restored in relationship with the God of the universe. You see, an ascended Christ leads to worship. This is the Christ who suffered like we did, yet has conquered sin and death. This is the Christ who actually died on the cross so that he could overcome sin and death. And this is the G Jesus who offers the gift of repentance, not just to Christians, but to the entire world so that they may experience the richness and joy that comes with knowing the one true God of the universe. This is the Christian hope. It's a hope for all people. Let's pray. Father, we come to your scripture and we say, open our eyes so that we may see you. Come, Lord Jesus, and help it. Reveal to us who you are. Thank you that you had to suffer, that you chose to suffer, that you know what it's like to be human, to experience grief and joy and pain and tragedy and temptation, brokenness and hatred. Thank you that you gave your life so that we can have eternal life with you. And thank you that repentance is this beautiful gift given to us and a gift that we can proclaim and give to others about who you are and what you have done for us. And Holy Spirit, as you are working in our hearts and as we turn now and worship you in song, may you continue to move in our hearts and show us what you are calling us to. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.